Good afternoon, everyone. This is Dr. Richard McCallum, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, uh, speaking to you. Um, I hope many of you are American Federation of Medical Research readers uh, and members, and uh, also other interested guests who have uh, decided to um, look into this podcast. The one I'm doing today is um, an approach that actually was suggested to me by my editorial assistant, Karina Respino, where it could be entitled Getting to Know Your Editor-in-Chief as a component or what are the specific interests and research goals of the, of the Editor-in-Chief of the journal. Um, so I thought I would address that component because it's a very appropriate one as I will inform you later about the special recognition August uh, is receiving. So I'm a gastroenterologist um, here at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm, uh, I was the founding chair of the Department of Medicine. I'm now director of a center, the Center for Neurogastroenterology and GI Motility, looking after patients and, and doing specific research uh, studies to help them and advance treatment, advance understanding. I have a particular interest in, in gastroparesis as part of the motility spectrum. Um, and hence, when we were informed that August is Gastroparesis Awareness Month, uh, it seemed a very uh, special time really to try to promote this entity, perhaps poorly understood, and not always um, at the uh, top of the differential diagnosis list, and perhaps explain to you a bit about what is gastroparesis and, and how we became involved and what we're doing and what is the national uh, approach and strategy to trying to advance knowledge and treatment. It's particularly appropriate uh, also uh, to speak to you because um, we received uh, information this last week, which was very, I think, satisfying for our team here at Texas Tech. Uh, we were recognized as uh, one of the world's experts in gastroparesis. We were listed in the top 10 in the world, and that's um, a recognition over 10 years. So it's a body of work it's more or less sustained productivity that our team uh, has been involved with, including my assistant here with me, Karina Espino. So we're very, well, I think motivated and sort of energized by having that news. And uh, much of it is due to the fact that over these last 10 or more years, um, I and my team have been a member of the NIH gastroparesis consortium uh, where there are six other universities uh, including the um, Johns Hopkins uh, Mayo Clinic Temple Mass General Louisville Wake Forest and ourselves and and we've been funded continuously now for uh, over 13 years and we'll be going another five years and the goal is to try to advance knowledge of the pathophysiology, how we can 
actually prevent gastroparesis. It's one thing to certainly diagnose it and treat it. And we do have some pharmaceutical approaches and, and surgical approaches. But certainly, we'd like to try to be more preemptive and preventive, if you like, in our approach. So let me address, therefore, um, a couple of basic concepts. Uh, gastroparesis should be thought of in patients who have upper gastrointestinal symptoms, postprandial nausea, early satiety, fullness, inability to finish a meal, abdominal epigastric discomfort. It could lead to vomiting, could lead to degrees of weight loss and malnutrition. And if you're a diabetic, obviously a very impaired glucose control. Eventually, these factors can lead to emergency room visits, hospitalizations. It can be a great toll on the um, patient's economics, quality of life, and ability to work and function. So these patients have endoscopies. They have a lot of imaging studies, ultrasounds, uh, CT scans. Medications are tried sometimes empirically. And eventually, we need to think about what else can contribute to those symptoms, what's called a functional problem. Stomach looks normal on endoscopy. Biopsies are normal. But the muscles and the nerves are not well coordinated and not functioning well. The stomach is lazy or so-called partially paralyzed, as in the term gastroparesis. When should you think about this? Well, in those particular symptom complexes where we haven't made any inroads and the diagnostic test of choice is what's called a gastric emptying. You label, you eat a labeled egg meal, scrambled egg meal, and pictures are taken by nuclear medicine for four hours. And they can ascertain whether the stomach empties at the right speed. After that, uh, the patient then moves into treatment to try to improve uh, nausea, try to accelerate gastric emptying, and address diabetic control, in, if the case may be. Because probably, certainly in El Paso, 60% of our patients have diabetes as a etiology. Diabetes probably of greater than five to 10 years duration, causes degeneration of the vagus nerve, Wallerian degeneration, so-called, and impairs the myenteric plexus, the nerves in the muscle, and also impairs the electrical rhythm of the stomach controlled by the cells called the interstitial cells of Cajal that are damaged. And the main advances we've made recently is understanding about the role of macrophages. Thanks to obtaining human tissue at surgery, some of our patients fail all therapy and need surgery, we've been able to take that opportunity to biopsy smooth muscle and learn that the, the M2 macrophages are very key in protecting uh, the interstitial cells of Cajal, maintaining nitric oxide levels, heme oxygenase, factors that sustain and maintain um, 
factors that um, protect and sustain um, those nerves and the interstitial cells of Cajal. If, if they're not sustained or maintained, then we move into a dominance of the M1 macrophage where we have impaired interstitial cells of Cajal, impaired electrical rhythm, smooth muscle doesn't contract normally. And um, we have um, loss of nitric oxide and protection um, against smooth muscle contraction. And we become somewhat paralyzed. So there's a, a new study we just started in the next six months where we're going to try to find a way to protect the M2 macrophage. So it doesn't get maneuvered or changed or the environment in the smooth muscle can overcome the depletion of nitric oxide and hemoxygenase, and we can sustain M2 macrophages and maybe be preemptive or preventive before we get into trying to resurrect, if you like, or improve the condition. Uh, another important development uh, that's been uh, recently uh, addressed is trying to um, understand new therapies. We mainly rely on dopamine 2 antagonists, metoclopramide and domperidone that inhibit nausea or improve nausea and stimulate smooth muscle. Um, where we've got side effects from these drugs. Reglan can cause a lot of CNS side effects. Domperidone is not approved in this country. Makes it difficult for the average practitioner to treat their patients. There's a new drug being developed by, TAP, by, by Takeda Pharmaceutica, which will replace some of the negative effects of dopamine 2 antagonists and prevent particularly their cardiac and central effects and could improve the quality of life of the patient. But a major development has been the realization about the spectrum of pathophysiology. We focused on the antrum and the stomach mainly uh, through endoscopic uh, biopsies, surgical biopsies, and uh, full thickness biopsies. But here at Texas Tech, we are noting that up to 35% of our patients, despite our best efforts, are not able to really respond to our therapies. And they end up undergoing surgery. And we have developed a, a surgical technique where we do a pyloroplasty. We cut the pyloris, the end of the stomach. And we also place a gastric stimulator in the smooth muscle of the body of the stomach. And that gastric stimulator is connected to a battery pack or a pulse generator in the abdomen, abdominal wall. And sends a stimulation into the end, into the body of the stomach, which in turn is transmitted up afferent pathways, afferent nerves into the dorsal motor nucleus, thalamus, and central nausea control areas of the brain. And it blocks nausea. Whereas, and when you cut the, the pylorus, you open up the gate and the stomach can empty. And we just didn't do this out of, um, you know, a hope. We had very good evidence that the pylorus 
the smooth muscle of the pylorus, just like the antrum, because of this macrophage two problem, has become depleted of interstitial soils of cahal. The electrical rhythm in the smooth muscle is not functioning well. In the case of the pylorus, it's got to relax and open the gate for food to come through. That's not working. And there's a lot of fibrosis occurring in the pylorus. And so by unleashing, if you like, that barrier or that obstacle to emptying, the stomach now can empty normally. And in addition, the effects of the antiemetic properties of the neurostimulator make your nausea better. We just presented this data at the recent annual GI meeting, albeit virtual, in May. And the article is in the preparation for being submitted as a manuscript. So that's extremely exciting data that we can actually return quality of life and function. Long-term follow-up in these patients we talk about 80, 90% improvement. We talk about stopping hospitalizations, improving glucose control, because gastric emptying has now been normalized. And in uh, most cases, patients are back functioning in their personal lives, as well as in their professional lives. So exciting news. Um, I don't want to only leave you with the message that all gastroparesis is caused by diabetes. There's another major contributor, probably up to 50% in some parts of the country, called idiopathic gastroparesis, where we believe that an insult, a gastroenteritis insult, food poisoning, restaurants, bacteria, viruses mainly, have damaged the enteric nerves of the stomach and pylorus and have impaired smooth muscle function. The good news in some ways is that we believe that healing can take place in these idiopathic patients. And that over time, maybe a year or more, we can see some resolution in these patients. And they may be more receptive to returning to a normal gastric emptying. Whereas diabetics, once that neuropathy and gastropathy is established. Unfortunately, we're not seeing resolution in those patients. Hence, the interest in doing preemptive studies with pharmacology that could stop these M2 macrophages evolving into the M1 category where we lose the nerves and the muscular function of the stomach. So, that is something that I've been doing for a number of years in my academic career. And um, we find, as many of you do, who have your own research fields of interest, very exciting and stimulating. It, it's very meaningful to us to see the progress the NIH has made. I've come along with them as a passenger. We're talking about five to 10 million people in this country that are devastated by gastroparesis. So I guess one message for you is be alert and be receptive to the symptoms of your patients. And when other tests are not working out, upper gastrointestinal discomfort, satiety, fullness, nausea, and even vomiting are becoming very clear, abdominal pain with eating. Think about gastroparesis. 
do a gastric emptying, do a good diagnostic test, and be aware that there are new therapies and very good therapies even available now. But that at the end of the day, 35 or more, or more percent of patients who are not responding because their lesions are too established can respond to a surgical procedure, a simple one done laparoscopically and robotically and uh, can return patients back uh, to a good function of life. So I wanted to leave that message with you. This is Gastroparesis Awareness Month in August. Please be alert uh, to this entity. Um, talk to your colleagues about it, particularly diabetologists who should be seeing it every day. It actually amazes me. I recently read an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, update on diabetes. And yes, they talked about the usual suspects. Renal, renal dysfunction, cardiomyopathy, dyslipidemia, hypertension. They didn't mention gastroparesis. They didn't mention the fact that part of the diabetic neuropathy is gastroparesis, a very devastating problem for those patients. And I go around and look at diabetic uh, handouts and exhibits at meetings. And indeed, gastroparesis is somehow excluded from the lineup of what to think about as a major complication of diabetes. Yes, if your patient has a peripheral neuropathy, much more inclined to have a, an accompanying gastric neuropathy and have gastroparesis. But those things are not emphasized either to the patient and the diabetologist doesn't really think about it every day. So we've got to be on our on, on the alert to make sure in a diabetic, more than five or 10 years duration with gastrointestinal symptoms, gastroparesis should be right up there at the top of your list to at least consider and exclude. Otherwise, um, I think, Karina, we're probably getting towards the end of our time. Um, I just want to say uh, I might in the future, taking her suggestion, um, ask some of my associate editors to speak at times, particularly when their area of interest or research overlaps that particular month. Um, that we have each one uh, comes up from time to time. We had hepatitis month recently in July and Dr. Rocky, our associate editor for hepatology spoke. Um, and we've had HIV month, obviously, uh, thyroid month in January. So we'll continue to perhaps find associate editors who can add an extra, an extra piece of special inside information about the area and uh, about some of their personal research interests as well. So you can get to know us and understand um, who's reviewing your articles um, and hopefully we can encourage you to continue to submit, submit your research to the Journal of Investigative Medicine uh, where they'll be very well reviewed and hopefully in a timely fashion and respond to you. So. 
I think in signing off here, please remember, gastroparesis here is being recognized in the month of August. Please be alert to the spectrum of symptoms, realize how to diagnose it and treat it, and be aware that great research is going on and that we'd look to have perhaps a preventive solution eventually for this entity. In the meanwhile, surgery can be a major game changer for these patients. Thank you very much for your attention. Um, wish you all the best as we approach the end of summer here. Labor Day is coming up a little later than usual. And um, I um, hope to be speaking to you soon again as our podcast series continues in September. Well, the very best colleagues, please enjoy the journal. Please feel free to contact me, Dr. Richard McCallum. I have email and other con uh, ways to communicate with me in the journal. I'd like to hear about how you think I'm doing as an editor-in-chief, uh, some other directions you might want to see the journal go in, and um, other comments you might have. Once again, all the best. I'm signing off. <laughs>